my dad passed away when I was 21. And a few days after we signed the deal, I went to the cemetery and I was just like shouting and I was crying. I was just like, man, like, I was like, we fucking did it. I was like, did it, did it, did it. Uh, because he was actually alive just at when I was like starting fan bites. Um, and he kept saying, no, I'm so proud of you. I don't understand what the heck you're doing, but I'm so proud of you. And that was the highest point where I went there and I was just like shouting, like literally, just like, like we did it, we did it. Da, 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 da. Um, that was a place where I just felt like, you know, coming back from Ghana. So I was born in London, but I went to live in Ghana for 10 years. And so I came here, so I came here and I've lived here for 17 years. Like that shouting and screaming felt like 17 years of just like, like succeeding and failing and figuring things out and all that stuff. And like, that was a really high point personally for me. And then probably the second one is when I told the team, I think when I told the team and I could like stand from them and feel proud of the fact that like it was actually to a company which I rated and which they would also do quite well. Um, that was it. But like those two moments for me uh, were pretty, were pretty profound. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm your executive producer, Colin Morgan. And today on the show, John Warlow is joined by Timothy Armu, who sold his influencer marketing company, Fanbytes, forget this, over three times revenue. But before we get there, there's an incredible article written about Timothy and his story, which I have actually linked in the show notes section, which can be found over at built to sell. Com. And I would highly recommend that before listening to this episode, you just go ahead and you know click that link and read that article. It's just going to give you that much more of an appreciation for, for Timo and what he built and what he was able to accomplish. So again, I will link that article in the show notes section over at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Timo, who started Fanbytes at just 21 years old. And the business, as I'd mentioned, was an agency which connected brands with social media influencers. And he worked with, you know, a monster brand such as McDonald's and Nike, amongst others. But what made his company unique was the technology that he implemented to be able to support the service that they were providing. Here to share with John the full story is Timo Armu. Enjoy. Timo Amru, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have listened for a while, so now I'm on it. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, it's great to have you, and I'm glad that uh, you've been a long-time listener. It's good to have uh, the full circle story. So tell me a little yeah. bit about Fanbytes. Yeah. So, I mean, Fanbytes was a biz that I started uh, five years ago in university, and it was in my second year of university at 21. Um, and our whole thing was like, we basically build software and services to help brands to run their influencer campaigns. And so, you know, brands like McDonald's, Delivery, Samsung, all of these guys, they come to us in order to like reach a young audience through influencers. And, um, and it was just something that I knew, 
I just knew the space was growing. I had had a very, very small, small, small um, exit before I started it. And I just knew the whole like social media game was going to be, you know, on the rise and everything else. And so I started a company and um, yeah. And in five years, grew it, 65 people, worked with a ton of brands, did some cool stuff. And then boom, two months ago, that was the end. <laughs> well, I want to get into all of that, but first I want to understand the business model. So yeah. uh, brands like McDonald's yeah. would, would, you know, they're selling Big Macs and they realize yeah, they've yeah. got to reach young people who are increasingly not watching television. They're yeah. watching TikTok and, and Instagram, whatever. And so they're like, the way we can reach that generation of people is to get people, creators on TikTok to, in other words, to, to, to represent their brand in some way, wear a McDonald's hat, take a bite of a McDonald's hamburger or whatever. And they, those influencers get paid a certain amount to do that, to, to promote a brand. Is that the basic business model? Yeah. But then the key thing that we had was we introduced a lot of like tech into the way that we did it. So let's pick that McDonald's example, because that's actually a real example, which was one we worked with early on where they were promoting their new McFlurry. And so our software was basically able to be like, okay, these are the hundred most influential people who talk about McFlurry. This is their growth rate. This is the engagement rate. But the most important thing was like having that data of who really are the most influential people in a audience in a specific community and then helping McDonald's to be able to um, work with those people. And That's then, so cool. Yeah. And I, then we apply that for everyone, you know, from in fact, the UK government in 2020, we led all the messaging for the government around COVID, the vaccine and all that stuff and we use our tech to be able to detect like who is seen as an authority in the space who is seen as this blah 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 and then we get them to talk about the brand that is so cool so i've heard of these businesses being very low tech like you know like it's an agency model where yeah. someone calls up the influencer says would you please talk about mcdonald's mcflurry and then you know they charge mcdonald's yeah, yeah. and there's some sort of but yours is all tech enabled so i, I want to understand the technology for a second so yeah. I get how you might be able to build an algorithm that that shows you who's trending, who's growing yeah. their audience faster. I get all that. How do you get the piece around what they talk about, i.e. Yeah, yeah. they talk about McFlurry's? Like, how does that get plugged into the algorithm? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the remit of my CTO, but basically how it worked is you can look at their hashtags. So you can just look at that. You can also look at who are they following and like when they talk about a specific brand, what is their engagement of that particular post compared to like their average engagement? And so if, for example, if you're a Estee Lauder or like a beauty brand, we can say, right, you know, these 10 people, when they have already spoken about your brand anyway, but also when they talk about your brand, they get a far higher engagement than their typical post, which probably tells you that this is someone who is like a credible um, thought leader. So we have a tech doing that in that um, remit. And then another remit that we had it in was we built a, um, a workflow tool. So as you said, in the past, it was very much like, you know, 
I know some influencers, I call them up, I WhatsApp them and I'm like, yo, do you want to do this thing? We built a workflow system where the brand could see which influencers had said they were interested, they could approve them, they could approve the content and they could see all their data and everything in real time. So those were really like the two uses of Turk. Um, first was very much as a workflow tool. And then the other was almost around like influencer identification. So cool. I think it's fascinating. It's, it's such an emerging space. Why didn't TikTok build the dashboard themselves? Well, I mean, so one of the things is like, so when people look at Fanbytes now, they see that we do a lot of stuff on TikTok. But actually, we started in 2017. TikTok wasn't even on the map. And so we were activating on like YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, and all that stuff. So I think the question is more like, why would any of these platforms not build it themselves um, yes. rather, um, rather than TikTok? And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Like the first reason is, if you think about like, the overall pie, influencer marketing is pretty much a spec on what Facebook and Instagram make from just programmatic ads, right? And so, so it's almost not worth their time to do it. Actually, what's better is for them to like work with people. So for example, uh, Fanbytes became a TikTok partner, a Snapchat partner, um, because the platforms would effectively give us the brands as well to activate the campaign because it's like, you know, they're making billions a year in revenue. Like it doesn't make sense for them to almost build something um, there. But then the other thing is because um, a lot of customers in this space. So, you know, for us, everyone from like Nike to Converse to all these brands, hey, they see this as outside paid media, like paid media, they're gonna run ads, programmatic, etc. For this, they're looking for both the performance, but also the creative and all that other stuff in there. And so there's like extra value add when you provide insights and creative, which Facebook doesn't build a creative team. Like TikTok don't necessarily build a um, creative team. Uh, they're more- Did you guys on, like, have a creative team? Did you guys have yeah, a creative team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. got it. Yeah. Okay. So we had a creative team of, uh, I want to say six people, and then we had a campaigns team, and then we had a sales team and a marketing team. Um, and the creative team was there because there are some brands who were spending, you know, quarter of a million with us. Like, they're not just going to be like, yeah, let's just use your tech. They want a bit of that insight. They want a bit of that handholding. And so that's when we kind of layered on that accounts and creative function. So it's kind of what, you know, M&A guys refer to as sort of tech enabled service. Mm. Like it was a service company with a deep technology or technology yeah. company with a service overlay, yeah. which by the way, would you characterize it as service with a technology overlay yeah. or technology with a service overlay? <laughs> <laughs> so I think when we started, um, and funny story, uh, when we sold the business, actually about two weeks afterwards, my girlfriend found this like small notebook where I'd written my goals down as to what I wanted uh, um, Fanbytes to be. And one of the things in there was like, okay, so we're going to build this like SaaS, <laughs> we're going to build this SaaS platform to like a million in revenue, and then we'll get 10x on it, and then it will be like 10 million. And I own X percent, so now, da, da, da. Um, and 
and I tell that story because I think at the beginning, our whole aim was we wanted to build like a pure software business. Um, uh, you know, but then we just realized like in this space, you just can't win that way. Like if you want, you know, the government to pay you 500 grand a pop and all that stuff, they're not just going to use it on tech. So I think for us, it was actually more of like a service business, which had a deep tech offering, um, deep tech offering, both on the influencer identification, but then also on the, on like the workflow of it, which meant we could very easily scale. Um, actually at our exit, fun story, at our exit, uh, 40% of our revenue came from the US, but we didn't have a single person in there. And it's kind of crazy. Like we're closing, you know, millions and millions of, um, dollars i guess and 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 um and we didn't have a single person there because we had tech which could enable us to like scale and extend beyond just actually having people in there wow that's interesting so how did you i mean the tech that you built is expensive and yeah you mentioned you had a very small exit which we we chose not to talk about today per se yeah, yeah. but how did you finance the the building of the technology like what was yeah. the, did you raise money or how did how did that yeah, work? yeah yeah so we raised from angels. Uh, uh, again, we were very, you know, juvenile in this space. So I think like our first thing was like 25K. <laughs> Even now I think about it. I actually had lunch with the investor who put in 25K at the beginning. And it's like, he made something ridiculous, like 56X back his money. I'm just like, <laughs> you, you lucky. And the craziest thing was like, we were students in there, right? And so, you know, we just didn't have context anyway whatever i'm not gonna moan um uh yeah so it was all angel financing so i think over the course of the business uh we raised i want to say i want to say 1.6 million max and that was intentional and the reason that was intentional because i had designed the business that when when we exit it would be for like tens of millions rather than hundreds of millions and I just didn't want that kind of, that kind of like VC like pressure of how does this become, you know, that business. Um, there's actually another funny story, which is I remember going, I had a random uh, intro to a VC. I think this was in our second or third year. And the VC asked me, you know, the typical question, how does this become a billion dollar company or something? And I just said, it's not. <laughs> and he was just like, what? I was like, well, it's not, but I can comfortably tell you that this business is going to be at least, you know, like X amount and like at least tens of millions. And he was like, okay, cool. He ended up being an angel investor as well. And when we, when the business got acquired, I told him, do you remember that conversation that we had? Um, I told you. Um, and so, and so, and so, yeah, it was all uh, angel financing um, by design. And when you say angel and financing, that, that comes in different flavors. Sometimes yeah. angel investment rounds can be very formal um, incubators, mm. very formal agreements. And then others, it's like a kind of a, you know, a, a quick check at a coffee shop and like, let me know if anything happens with this kind of thing. So where were you on that spectrum? Was it oh, fairly formal or fairly yeah, more formal, more formal. Uh, so I think, our first thing I said was like, you know, 25, that's just a joke. Um, and then we, I think we did like 250 and then 500 and then 600. 
So it's very formal, um, you know, very much like we're raising to get to this function, we're raising to get to this function. Uh, sorry, uh, this this milestone. Um, in hindsight, I would have probably one of the things that I've been doing a lot is just like jotting down things that I've learned. And in hindsight, I think I would have um, I would have just raised a bunch at the beginning, um, not a lot, but still like raised in one tranche because uh, it may have also been the same outcome but i think um but i think i would have perhaps my mindset would have been a bit more like a bit freer if i knew that we had quite a bit of cash in the bank um because even when we raised that 600 the last round like we had already like millions in the bank anyway or like that took us to over a million in the bank. And I remember just that like free and feeling of saying, well, we can hire anyone we want now. Like we can do whatever we want. Um, which I think in hindsight, if I'd had that earlier, um, I think it would have been maybe same outcome, but I would have probably like owned more of the business. And also maybe it'd have been a maybe a bigger outcome. Uh, but I think that would have been a change I'd have made. How much of the business did you have to give up in the, in the various rounds of, uh, of not, a lot, not a lot, not a lot. I think uh, between uh, between myself and my co-founders, and I was the majority um, shareholder, um, but between myself and my co-founders, I think we still owned about 70, 75% of the business. Okay. Um, but it was more like, for example, the first ever investor we had was just like, a really easy round for them. It was like 25K for like 8% or something. It was just ridiculous. Um, uh, so, so yeah. did you say 25% for 80%? Did 25 grand for 80%? No, for 8. Oh, 8%, like, 8, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got it, okay. That was a bit too much. Obviously, I got more, you know, sensible as time went on. But, uh, well, I, I want to explore that, Timo, because I think there's, you know, um, some entrepreneurs listening to this may be considering raising money. It's of course mm. now we're recording this in July of 2022 and it's a difficult time yeah. to raise money. And I think the, you know, the, the, the balance of power has moved heavily in favor of the investor. Mm. Uh, and I, and I just wonder what advice you might give. I mean, a young entrepreneur, maybe he or she's in college thinking about, starting a business and, and thinking about, you know, do I go in an incubator? Do I, do I raise some money, friends and family or, or angel? Mm. Like, is there one thing you wish you'd known you've already shared that maybe get a bigger tranche up front? Is there anything else you might know about like the deal terms or, or how to approach it that you could pass on to young entrepreneurs going through it for the first time? Um, yeah. So I think a couple of things. So I think the first one is probably, you want to raise when so you want to raise when you're on an upward trajectory rather than when you like need the money so by that i mean for example uh subsequent you know 500 600 were so so easy because the revenue chart just looked like it was just going up and to the right and so really what we're saying was we just need to pour more gas on this and that's it and, you know, we completed 600K in like, like two weeks. It was just very, very quick. 
Um, and so I think often when people try and fundraise, they're hoping on either the good word or to like convince the investor of something. But if you kind of assume that investors are in the business of building wealth, like if you think about your thing, if you think about your business as a stock, it is very well documented that like people always like to pile on when the stock is going higher and higher. And so whatever metric it is, whether it's revenue and I'm a customer, it's just like have some kind of metric which you can control and show that it's going up and to the right. And at that point is when you fundraise. Because um, I think too many people either like try and fundraise too early where it's like, okay, I've got this idea and it's blah, blah, blah. Or they try and like fundraise when things aren't going well. That's also obviously not going to be the case. And like people may take advantage of you. Um, so I think that's probably the reason why, for example, our first ever investor, like is no slight to them, but it's almost like we came to them with an idea. And so because we came to them with an idea and all that stuff was like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. This seems about right, blah, blah, blah. But when subsequently we could go to them, we just, you know, numbers are increasing. And it's almost like this, this, this ship is riding you can either get on it or not, but either way, it's going to get to the end destination. Like that change really helped us. And when you're raising 600 grand in the latter stages, the late, yeah. later stages of the, yeah. what what's your valuation technique? Are you using a multiple of revenue to place a value on the business or what, yeah. what are you doing? So actually, uh, that's a great question because uh, I have never spoken about this. So yes, I was using a multiple of revenue but I was also um, I was also using a sense of what I thought the business would be worth at exit, and then like not going too crazy over that. So here's what I mean. So we had the opportunity to fundraise, I think, at like a fifty million valuation, right? And this was through like. Uh, this was basically through some like VC folk were like, well, actually, if you do this and you do that, you know, we could raise that this amount and we'll do it as like a series A, da, da, da. But I knew that the and the way I designed my business was, you know, like the outcome that I want to say 30 million, right? And so because of that, I was very intentional on almost going, actually, no. We don't want to do that because I'm also aware of, you know, liquidation preferences and all that stuff there, which basically mean that even if you sold for 50, the VCs would have to take out their money first. And so I think it was a combination of A, revenue um, and growth rates and all that stuff. But actually almost like in my mind, I know what the outcome of this business would be at least 30 million. And then how do I like make sure that there's enough of an upside from the last fundraise so like all the angel investors are happy um and also i'm happy as well and i don't feel like i have to you know uh like sacrifice some stuff and when you're in that late stage uh with angels yeah when you say I want to make sure they're happy. Does that mean they they double their money, they they triple their money? Like what what would how did you determine what they would be happy with? I guess is a question. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's a. Um, so I think that matured over time. So I think at first it was basically, you know, um, I think there's this whole saying that 
Warren Buffett has this thing, which is like the first rule is don't lose money. Second rule is remember the first rule. And so for me, my whole thing is like, like my whole thing was, could I, you know, return back the money with a bit? That was probably in like the first year. Um, and then really the number that I came up with was like, can I 3X their money um, minimum for everyone? Now, as we mentioned before the call, there were some investors who's, who, who, it was crazy amounts. But I think on average, everyone kind of returned a pretty good amount, like over four, yeah, over four X, I'd say on average. Um, yeah over Forex on average for everyone. So um, it was good. And the reason why, uh, to be honest, John, was, you know, I know that we haven't like spoken too much about, I guess, personal background, but like I'm 27. And I also knew that if I can get a really good outcome like this, you know, in the tens of millions at 27 for investors and for myself, like, I'm set, like any subsequent business that I ever start, I can just go anywhere and just say, you know, I sold a biz for like whatever, 30 million plus. Um, uh, I'm now gonna do this other thing. And like a bunch of people would just be like, right, here's some money, here's some this, blah, blah. So I think that I took a very long game approach to it, which is like, get a really good win now because you have your whole life ahead of you to play multiple games where you can then go for that billion, you can then go for that 100 million, you can then go for, you know, blah, blah, blah. So um, that was my thinking behind it. Timo, I need to dig deeper there because, you know, I know a few 27-year-olds and they're not thinking about life in the same way you're thinking about life. They're uh, not all of them, but the ones that I'm thinking of are not necessarily <laughs> as motivated and as focused and as thoughtful and ambitious as you are. Where does that come from? Um, so I think it came from being a poor kid. Um, that's it. Um, it came from the fact that um, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I was an only child. And so I think I had a lot of time to like think through life and think through how other people have done life. And also just almost a kind of no one's going to save you type mentality. Um, So I think it definitely came from that. That ambition definitely came from, you know, not having much to do apart from like read and learn how other people have done stuff. And then also, I think, I think that when I was younger, and this is kind of a separate thing, but like I grew up, I guess the, the equivalent in the US is like in the projects, I guess. Um, I grew up on like a council estate block um, in a place in uh, South London. And I think that I'd always grown up with a bit of a chip on my shoulder that like I didn't deserve to be here, you know. My dad, first generation immigrant from Ghana, he came over and his whole thing was like survival, um, less, you know, get a decent job, don't rock the boat enough. And I think there was a time where it just kind of dawned on me. I was like, I'm coming to this house or, or this flat and like, I shouldn't be here, uh, you know? And I think that just gave me this just like chip on my shoulder to, to just uh, make my life different. And I think that has always been the case. 
I still want to know where it comes from, though, because a lot of people growing up in difficult circumstances take a different approach, right? They say, well, you know, I've got lots of excuses. I don't need to, you know, like I've had all these terrible things happen to me. So like, I don't need, you know, like I've got a built-in excuse, right? Yeah. Whereas you were in incredibly difficult circumstances, as I understand, I've done a little bit of reading Hmm. and that wasn't your approach. You were like, I am going to do the opposite of that. I'm going to actually take control of the situation. Where does that come from? I don't know. I guess this is now turning into a therapy session. I love it. Um, (laughs) um, I don't know, um, John. I genuinely think that, I think I had just, I don't know. I think I had always just gone through life as just this feeling of like, the cards that were dealt to me at the beginning are just not the cards that I have to play. And that was it really. And maybe, maybe, I mean, as I'm thinking about it now, maybe also, so I went to a six, I went to a a state school um, and then I went to a boarding school. I was fortunate enough to get a place in a boarding school um, for sixth form, which is like year 12 and year 13. So when I turned like uh, 16, I turned 16. And I think maybe then I had always kind of like seen myself as just smarter than like smarter than most people. And so I think that kind of thing of just like being smarter than most people or being willing to like put in more effort than other people. I think I had seen myself always as a bit of like a special kid. Um, um, so I think that then led really to 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 um to just wanting to be special in a bunch of things, like wanting to be the best in uh, in grades, in football, in sports, in 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 um business, in public speaking, in sales. It it just kind of came from a sense of like feeling like I could be better than others. So why not just do that? Thank you for sharing. I think it's a, it's an amazing story. So take me back to the business for a second. Yeah. You're, you're growing the business. How big did you get before you decided to sell? Yeah, so we got to uh, 65 people in 2021, uh, probably about 400 clients, uh, millions in profit, uh, eight figures in revenue. Um, yeah, a pretty substantial, a pretty, uh, substantial beast. So what made you decide to sell? Um, (laughs) so I think there were a bunch of reasons, like some were kind of industry specific and then some were personal. So I guess we'll go into like the industry specific ones, which was, um, we had been approached by a few PE companies who wanted to, you know, buy the business. And I think, um, you know, there was a time we weren't approached by any. And then within the space of like two months, we'd been approached by three. And I was like, hmm, what's going on here? Like, it feels as if there's, you know, consolidation in the space. But what I did was I spoke to each of them about their rationale behind it. And it was almost like they all saw, you know, influencer marketing as being part of like the overall marketing mix. 
which I agreed with. I think that was exactly what we saw with like pay, PPC, search. Um, all of them started as like silo services and then suddenly they all became uh, part of that. So I think industry-wise, I saw that. And I think even in tandem with that, I kept thinking about the Fanbytes business and I kept thinking like to get to that next level of growth, because we had almost positioned ourselves as like being the Gen Z partner for brands. So one of the things that we didn't speak about was probably about two, three years in, we were doing, you know, influencer marketing stuff. And then I decided and I said, actually, we need to own a specific part of the market. So all our marketing then became about Gen Z rather than just being broadly um, about influencers. And that was something that I I just like thought about over time because I was like, well, this space is going to be even more competitive. So we need to be known as the guys for a specific thing. Anyway, so with that, what I ended up doing was I thought, well, for fanbites to play bigger and to get to that next level of growth, actually, it needs a bit more of like seniority. Like it needs to kind of just be in a bigger, um, be in a bigger company. Um, and then the third thing for me, uh, sorry, so that was more on like the industry side of things, like the strategic side of things, because I definitely did feel like for it to grow to the next level, for our team to be able to grow to the next level, for myself to be able to kind of just on my general life journey uh, to grow to the next level, I just felt like the business needed to be like inside of uh, something bigger. And I think personally as well, um, personally, so I, when I was 19, I had set myself a goal that, you know, before I turned 30, I wanted to be, you know, worth a certain number. And so even um, when we took on funding, I always thought to myself, right, you know, there needs to be a point where we get liquidity. And actually, if we're seeing a lot of demand for people wanting to acquire us, then actually this is a very good time because we had been growing, on average, we grew 150% every single year. And actually in the year that we sold in 20, well, we sold two months ago in 2021, we had just come off growing something like 170%. It was just like, boom. And I just thought, A, I don't think this is actually going to continue. But B, if there was ever a good time to sell your business, this is probably the time when you're growing incredibly. Um, and then probably like the final point on that, because I know that I've gone through a bunch of different points. Um, but a final point on that was, so I have this kind of you know thesis of the moment that you take money from investors, or to be honest, when you start a business, to me, it has like four outcomes, right? Um, number one, the business fails. Number two, the business goes public. Number three, the business is like passed on to your kids or something like that. Um, or number four, you sell the business. And so for me, it was like, well, those are the four outcomes. Number one, it's not going to happen because the business is not going to fail. Number two, the business is not like substantial enough. And also I didn't want to put in like the required amount of time and years for it to go public. I'm 27, so I don't have any family, uh, uh, any like, you know, kids or anything like that. And so like the only logical outcome is for the business to be acquired. And so it was more of like, when is the right time to do that? And 
under what kind of conditions does that happen? So those were kind of the strategic and also the uh, personal reasons uh, um, why why we look to sell. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people get to those you know, those metrics where the business is growing very quickly yeah. and selling is the last thing on their mind, right? Mm. Like they're this is great. We're going to, you know, let's ride this wave to the top and then let's, let's sell when we're at the top of the wave, not yeah, on the yeah, way yeah. up the wave. What gave you the, the discipline to do the opposite? So I think, um, so I think one was, as I just thought through, and to be honest, I think part of this came from uh, reading your book, actually, which was, if you're going to sell the business, the worst thing to do is sell when you're at the top, because then the growth story for buyers is just not there. Like you want to give some story which says like, we are 70% of our way there. And like the 30% that like by buying us, you can make up is so great that like, that's the reason why you should buy us. And then I think personally, I think I was also, because I had a number that I wanted to reach by the time I was 30, I almost was like, well, if I hit that number, I'm fine. Like, I, I like you know, if I'm a 27-year-old and I have like millions in my bank account, I don't need an extra million. I don't need, you know, an extra 5 million if I already have 5 million. So um, that that was a combination of it. Like it was kind of business sense was um, sell when you're reaching the peak or when you're like not yet at the peak because the growth story for the buyer is better. And then also personally, like I have a certain uh, number of chips I want to take. And therefore, when you have the opportunity, take it because remember earlier i said the aim wasn't to kind of have this like 100 million exit the aim was that i knew by you know selling and having a really great outcome for myself and for everyone that would set me up for like another two three four companies that i want to do where i can take a much bigger swing got it when did you write the number down the number that you hoped to be worth by the time you were 30 uh, at 19. Tell me about the circumstances there. Um, so I had, so before I'd done Fanbytes, I had started a, I had started a small media business, which did get acquired by an agency called Horizon Media. Um, that I sold for like 130 grand or something like that. But, at, you know, at 17, that was a pretty decent outcome. Um, and I think, uh, and I think just like shortly after that, I just kind of, thought about, um, well, by the time I'm 30, I want to be able to have um, X amount, which by doing that means I wouldn't have to worry about anything for the rest of my life. Um, and that was it. It was almost like, I realized 130 grand was not that much money. <laughs> and so therefore I then decided, well, actually I want, you know, a lot more than that. Um, and so that was it. <laughs> that was it, very straightforward. Wasn't that you wanted to buy something though, no. or it was more that sense of, uh, I guess, security that you yeah. you could do whatever you wanted for the, you know you did, you weren't you never have to worry. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Are you putting words in your mouth and saying that, or is that no, no, a hundred percent. Most of most of my decisions 
as an entrepreneur, especially through Fanbyte, were driven from, I want for the rest of my life to be able to act from a position of abundance. Like that was pretty much my force and function. Like that's the reason why I didn't really care that much about going for this like 100 million uh, billion thing. Cause I was like, the thing that I know I can control is that, you know, this business will be sold for tens of millions and I can then, you know, act from a position of abundance rather than coming from a position of, you know, what if it happens? What if it happens? Because there's not that many companies, as you know, which sell for a hundred million. There's a ton of companies though, which sell for like 30 million plus. And so like, that's the game which I wanted to play. And I knew that I could easily play that game because the market was right. I had the right set of skills and it was just about executing. So the private equity companies are all sniffing around. You get yeah. three, uh, you know, three sort of inquiries in the space of a couple of months. Like, yeah. okay, well, there's definitely something here. Here, where did it go from there? What did you do next? Yeah. So, funny enough, all those three um, ended up not. So we ended up not going like that much further with them. We appointed an M and A advisor, uh, or an M and A bank, and then we just run a process, and we ended up. Having uh, so I interviewed a bunch of the M and A banks. We picked one, um, and then uh, yeah, and then we just ran a process. We ended up with four letters of intent, um, and then we picked the one that we thought was best for the company and the amounts and everything else. What made you choose your M and A professional? What was it about them? Uh, How did you evaluate? Good them? question. So one of the <laughs> so. One of the things that, in fact, the thing that swayed us was that this didn't feel like a major deal to them, which feels very counterintuitive, right? Like you feel, you know, some people will say, well, you know, sell to someone who's like really, really, you know, like care so much. But actually, in my perspective, from my perspective, you want to sell to someone who like, let's say selling for like 30 million or 30 plus is kind of like, yeah, that was nice. But actually they're used to selling like 80 million um, or, or maybe even like, you know, 60 million. Um, because what I wanted was just like a very safe pair of hands where it was just very obvious. It was just like, well, so we do this and we do this and we do that. Um, Cause I don't want my, financial future to be in the hands of someone who's like winging it, you know? <laughs> um, um, and also obviously they had relevant experience, blah, 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 blah. But I think like that was it that really kind of made me go, oh, okay, that's, that's, um, that's interesting. And it came between, you know, two, two of them. And I think fundamentally I just enjoyed also just like speaking to the MA guys as well. So it was a combination of, you know, like fit, um, they done a lot of deals, but also almost like this feeling like a very standard deal for them, which I think is counterintuitive to what a lot of people think, which is like, you know, get someone who like this could, you know, make or break their company. It's like, well, actually you don't, because if it breaks the company, then it breaks your company as well. So don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well said indeed. Um, you know, M&A professionals have uh, an ability to 
package a company up and present mm-hmm. it in a way it's it's part art, part science, it's part magic. It's incredible to watch them sort of position a business so that yeah. it is attractive to an acquirer. What was the biggest uh, most surprising thing that you saw them do with your company that you're like, wow, I love the way you're positioning this about our company. Like, did did they do anything that made you kind of go, wow, I, I get why, you know, you guys earn the big bucks. What, you know, like, what was mm. it that they did to position your company to make it irresistible? Um... So I think that they did well to really emphasize um, the growth that we had been on over the last five years. So I thought, well, obviously, you know, over time, you've seen that our revenue is growing incredibly. You've seen that we're profitable, you know, like seven figures in profits, et cetera. But I think I was very surprised as to, well, well, not very surprised, very impressed as to how they pick like other other things that showed growth over time. Um, whether it was like what? the brand, well, whether it was like the brands that we worked with, the uh, maturity of the brands over time, um, the average order value and all of those things there. And, and it's all stuff which I knew, but I guess like almost pulling them out and then saying, as well as the revenue and the profit, like here is all the other things that show that they've just been on an upwards curve and they're just going to keep going on an upwards curve. Um, I think that story there was pretty compelling. Excellent. The four offers that you got, how did you evaluate those? What was your sort of impression of those as they came in? Well, I mean, I will be lying if I said cash was not one. Um, you know, like the total value of the deal. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, probably in order, total value of the deal, the total composition of the deal, right? So the total composition of our deal with Brain Lab was, was an all cash deal. Um, there was no stock, there was nothing there. Um, but the third thing is, you know, something that I hear a lot of people say, or rather before I went through an exit, I'd hear people say, and I'll go like, yeah, that's just bullshit which is where they've like, you know, where's the place that the team would really enjoy? And I was like, you're only saying that because you're scared that someone from your team will listen to this and think you were just a money-hungry person. Um, but actually, that then became quite a consideration for me because um, at the beginning, I thought, right, whoever gives the biggest check, there you go. Uh, but then, like, over time, I started thinking a lot about especially myself who, you know, had spent a lot of time in the business was quite, um, especially at the early stages before we built out a management team, I was quite, you know, focal, uh, focal point of the brand. I was like, well, where is the team actually going to grow? Um, and I think for Brain Labs, it was like the cultures aligned. I mean, I mean, even before we signed the deal, I think like a week before we signed, like they had just been awarded like the best digital agency in the UK for like two years in a row. There was all this stuff where I just felt like people would be excited to join. So it was a composition of those three things. I think like A was, you know, definitely the value of the deal. B was like the composition, you know, like stock shares and all that stuff. And then, and then, and then C was definitely like 
where do I think that uh, that like the people of fanbase would really care and be really down to down to work at? Yeah. Got it. So when it comes to total value, I know uh, we can't say the exact number, but are you able to share sort of like a multiple or anything that would give people a sense of where? Uh, yeah. So it was about uh, three, let's say like three X revenue. Three um, X revenue. Wow. Yeah. So like I'll say two point, like 2.8 to like 3.2 X. Um, and the reason why revenue played such a factor was because um, uh, because we had so much tech, um, because we use tech on like influencer identification, we use tech on our workflow, we did all that stuff. It meant that actually like the story told wasn't necessarily just based on profit, but we had quite a bit of uh, tech in there as well. And so, uh, yeah. And so really... What would that have roughly been as a multiple of profit? Oh, just a lot. <laughs> um, uh, just a lot. Um, trying to calculate. Uh, 18, 19 times you did that? Wow. Yeah. So, you know, like a digital agency, you know, we've had Robert Glazer on the show and people can listen to him, but he's had a lot of experience evaluating and acquiring digital agencies and sort of even the larger ones uh, usually are sort of, you know, single digit multiples, maybe higher single digits, but sort of eight, nine. So, I mean, you're, you're getting much, much, much more than that. And again, it's, you strike it up to chalk it up to the amount of technology that you had in the business at the time. Yeah. Did you so have think, recurring – sorry, Timo, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I think tech was definitely one. Um, I mean, tech growth rates um, – and we had, you know, quite a bit of IP. Like, apart from the tech, we also had a division of the business where we, like, owned and operated some channels. We managed some talent. So – a better way to think about the business is almost as if if you had like a media group where you had some services, you had some tech, you had some like owned and operated IP, like you had an amalgamation of all the different things, which therefore meant that it wasn't just based on um, uh, EBIT. Got it. And when you looked at the other three deals, how did they compare on the top line number? Were they all in that sort of around three times revenue or was it a huge spectrum? Um, I'd say apart from one, they were all like, uh, two were a bit off and I'd say two were clear. Um, mm. two were a bit off and I'd say, you know, two, uh, two were close probably. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sort of ballpark, nobody gave you a, like a low ball. Uh, we'll give you four times EBITDA for it. No, 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 no. Um, no, no, no. There was one, but they didn't even get a letter of intent. It was just like some bullshit conversation. And he sent me a doc. And I think I just replied something like lol or something like that. It was just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. And so when it came to consideration, usually, again, if we compare a digital agency where there's no technology, a services business, it would usually be on sort of a, you know, a three or a five year earnout. And you know you might get forty or fifty percent of your cash up front, and then a big chunk of it would be sort mm. of 
in in the future. How how was your? It sounds like yours was structured more as a cash at close. Did did that take some negotiation or what was? No, what was no. That like? So no. So there was an element of an earn out, not as much as uh, three years. No, um, but there was an element of an earn out where basically like, but like in there, for example, one of the things that I was very focused on was, um, you know if a whole thing is of the business maturing and me being able to focus on the things which I'm very good at, which is like brand vision, marketing, all that stuff, then let me play in that role. Um, and so, uh, and so we took the majority of the table. Um, I say of the table, basically like we got the majority of the cash up front, um, a significant, majority and then uh there is a period uh where we're working there now but um it is not basically when people have earnouts one of the things that one of the considerations that i always have when people are talking about earnouts is you can define the way that you operate your earnout like some of the earnouts are like well you still have to be operational business and doing all that stuff Whereas in our case, in my case, I was like, I'm really good at a specific set of things. Um, and I want basically for us to agree to hire, you know, like senior talent and all those guys who are going to really help drive the day to day, which actually means that like, in terms of my general focus areas on the business, it's not as much because I'm not like focusing on a broad range of things. Um and that for me again was I think another reason why I I thought Brainlabs were actually a very good partner because they had that kind of we agreed and said, look, like fundamentally, um, these are the terms that I think could work well in terms of like what my focus areas are on. Because in what I'm doing now, it's just fun to me. It's just like, you know, it's just fun. I like maybe I do one speaking gig every two weeks or something like that. Or I join one meeting, you know, every two weeks or something like that. But the day-to-day is run by a team. But Timo, some people are listening to that saying, oh man, like, I don't, I'm not sure I would be comfortable giving up control over some some of my equity. Now, granted, you got the majority of your, yeah. the vast majority of your cash up front. Did have you ever felt a little bit conflicted about having quite a bit of wealth tied up in a business that you're not sort of running, you know, making sure the yeah. trains are moving on time and all that stuff? No, not really, because I mean, um, I, uh, like before we exited the business, we had a management team in place, and so operationally, I wasn't as involved, and I and I actually uh, helped slash helping to hire that like next layer of seniority um, anyway. And so for me, it's not as if like they brought in someone who's doing things. It's like, well, we both chose someone to effectively, uh, you know, support the team on operating the business, which therefore means like, uh, doesn't really matter to me. Um, and also, you know, I have already said, but like the majority <laughs> of the stuff was you know was was uh realized on day one anyway so doesn't did, really did me. you did you achieve the number that you were yeah. s- hoping to set out by the yeah. time you're 30 
by in, the, far. in the initial cash payment by yeah. far. Awesome. Congratulations. Far. That's Thank awesome. You. That's awesome. Hey, are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? A couple yeah. of questions that uh, we ask every year. Awesome. What's the slimiest trick a potential acquirer tried to use <laughs> on you? Uh, slimiest trick. Slimer's trick was one where, um, but the thing is, I don't think it was coming from a position of like malicious intent. I think it was just the way that I did it, which I dusted. Yeah, whatever. Um, so I think it was when it was, um, when you looked at like the total consideration and in it just included a bunch of random stuff like, you know, uh, depending on like client retention and depending on um, how many cross sales are done between fan buys and the acquiring brand. And I don't think it was like slimy at all. I think that's very important to say, but I think it was more like, why would anyone do that deal? <laughs> like, that, like that just doesn't make any sense. Why would basically anyone who then sells to that business just wakes up every day thinking, oh shit, I need to cross sell some stuff or my money is gone, et cetera. Whereas with, you know, better deals is just revenue and just grow the revenue however way you can. So I think um, I think that was uh, not slimiest, but I say the most uh, unconventional. <laughs> it's very awesome, awesome. Well, Caveat, unconventional from slimy, got it. What was the biggest mistake you made uh, I mean, it sounds like a great exit, let's be honest. But if you could play your cards again from the beginning, the yeah. exit, you know, what what might you do differently? Uh, not hiring senior people early enough. Um, not hiring senior people early enough. Um, that was a that was a major um, misstep by me because I just didn't know that I had to. I I um like I'm I'm very good at like sales, marketing, all that stuff, like building funnels and all that stuff. Like I'm very good at that. And so my whole thinking was, well, if you just keep bringing in the business and if you build the funnels and get the team to run the business and the sales and all that stuff, then that's all cool. Um, for example, fun fact, like 95% of our revenue was all inbound. So like brands would just come to us with briefs, et cetera. I think what I should have done was perhaps in our second year or from the moment I could afford it would have been to hire adults who basically had like done this shit before and and not not shit ship by the way <laughs> had had like sailed sailed this ship before because I think that the toughest part of our business and now that I look back there were a lot of things which took us like two years to learn which really could have taken three months or thing that took five years to learn when really they should have taken five months especially in businesses like ours where we're not building rockets we're not building anything crazy it's like a business model which a lot of people understand and actually if i'd hired people who had already done that that would have made my life easier and i think that the business I think that a business would have got to where it was in a shorter period of time. 
Got it. That's helpful. If we think about the exit window as as the that two month period where you got you know two or three letters from private yeah. equity groups to closing a couple of months ago, if we think about that sort of window, what was the lowest emotional point you reached during that window? Uh, so that process was from October to uh, to April. The lowest point was probably going through DD. And it wasn't me going through DD. It was my, uh, um, who was it? Yeah. So it wasn't me going through DD. It was my co-founders going through DD because they were doing all like the you know data room, Excel spreadsheets, and all that stuff. Um, and I think the reason why I thought it was the lowest point was because we hadn't done any proper accounting, <laughs> and so uh, there were so many things in there. So we use like a different form of accounting, which Brain Labs um, uh, used or different to what they use, which therefore meant that I think at some point our hearts were in a mouth a bit where we're like, ooh, you know, the data we've provided them is completely truthful from our perspective. We just hope they can also see it from our perspective. Um, and it was just little things like, for example, well, not little things, big things. Um, uh, the method of accounting we use was something called cash accounting, uh, which is when we land a brand, et cetera, their revenue goes into that month. However, that brand could uh, could be doing something for like six months, right? And the method which like bigger and more structured company uses accrual accounting, which actually means that it's not that it's done in that month, it's actually spread out over six months. And so what can then end up happening is like, you might say, well, we did X revenue uh, this month, but actually you didn't because that campaign is over like six months. So you've got to divide it by six, which therefore means that your overall revenue is actually lower and, and all that stuff. Anyway, that I think was probably the toughest bit, but I think that my co-founders did a good job of almost like insulating me from that because all I did was at the beginning, I met the businesses, told a story, told the growth story, here's how we go, et cetera. Once we have a letter of intent, pass it over to those guys. It's like, cool, take care of it. Um, and then when I was needed to then do any like pitches, et cetera, then I'd come in. Um, but I think, you know, sometimes speaking to them and going, oh, I remember once Ambrose would be like, yo, I think this deal will be called off. And I was like, how is it possible we'll be caught off? Like Dan has told me this deal is going to go ahead. Dan being the um, founder of Brain Labs. And I trust Dan and I trust his word. And everyone else has said it's going ahead. Why would they know? And it's like, well, because of this numbers, actually our number like is apparently lower, blah, blah, blah. So that was probably the only time where I had a bit of stress. But apart from that, it was pretty plain sailing, which I think is big testament to Brain Labs. Yeah, it sounds like it. What was the highest emotional point you reached during that same window? Um, when a few days after we signed the deal, um, and I guess this isn't something that we've covered, but so my dad passed away when I was 21 and a few days after we signed the deal, I went to the cemetery and I was just like shouting and I was crying. I was just like, man, like, I was like, we fucking did it. I was like, did it, did it, uh, because he was actually alive just at when I was like starting Fanbytes. 
Um, and he kept saying, no, I'm so proud of you. I don't understand what the heck you're doing, but I'm so proud of you. And that was the highest point where I went there and I was just like shouting, like literally, just like, like we did it. We did it. Da, 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 da. Um, that was a place where I just felt like, you know, coming back from Ghana. So I was born in London, but I went to live in Ghana for 10 years. And so I came here. So I came here and I've lived here for 17 years. Like that shouting and screaming felt like 17 years of just like, like succeeding and failing and figuring things out and all that stuff. And like, that was a really high point personally for me. And then probably the second one is when I told the team, I think when I told the team and I could like stand from them and feel proud of the fact that like it was actually to a company which I rated and which they would also do quite well. Um, that was it. But like those two moments for me uh, were pretty were pretty profound. Hmm. What was your dad like? He was he was actually quite different to me. He was quite mild mannered, um, very gentle. Um, yeah, very different to me actually. If he saw what I was doing now, he he would be well. If he saw what I was doing now, and even if I told him about the deal, et cetera, until he saw the money in my bank account, he would not believe me. Like, I could show him a contract saying, these guys are saying they are going to pay this at this time. <laughs> like, okay, well, let's hope so. Maybe, you know, it would be like, let's hope they don't get robbed or something. It's like, it's like, it's like that. But yeah, um, very, you know, sort of the earth um, kind of guy. Sounds like you'd be pretty proud of you. Yeah, 100%. As you prepared for your exit, what resources did you look at? Did you, was there an online course or a, a book or a, did you go to a conference? Like give people who are maybe going through the, through this for the first time, some yeah. resources they can check out. Well, I mean, I guess there's some resources and then there's some actions. I think resources. So, you know, this is in a, shameless plug, but I did read like the art of selling your business about two or three times before I went through, <laughs> um, before I went through the process just to like almost know what's going to happen. So nothing was a surprise to me. So, you know, things from the type of buyers, the type of, you know, uh, deal structures, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, I mean, that was, that was a pretty, a pretty good, uh, resource. Um, and then I think in terms of like actions, one thing that I'd say to anyone is like, try and document the process. So for example, probably about a month, I don't know a month, probably about two, three weeks until we knew the deal was gonna happen. Sorry, yeah, two, three weeks until we knew the deal was gonna happen, yeah. Um, what I did was every day I would record like a five minute voice note to myself of how I was feeling. And it was incredible because like some days I'd be like, oh my God, I really hope this deal goes through, da da da. And then some other days I'll be like on this kind of Kanye West floor of like, of course this deal's gonna fucking go through because I'm the fucking greatest. <laughs> like, you know? Um, um, but I think it's really good to have that to like document because as weird as it sounds, as time goes on, you forget little details. 
Like, even though it is a fundamental change in your life, you forget little details. Or, for example, on the day that we signed, it was all over Zoom <laughs> because um, it was, like, very late at night. My co-founders, um, they were in their, like, individual places. So we hopped on, on Zoom to sign the DocuSign. And I have a 15-minute video of, of, of me recording the screen. And it's like a speech where I go, like, guys... The last five years, we fought, we've argued, we've cried, we've laughed and everything else. And we've like made it happen. I'm so thankful, et cetera. And we like, you know, Mitch signed and then cool. And then Ambrose signed and then I signed. And like, I now have that as like a 15 minute video, which I can just watch at any time. So I think like documenting the process, not only at the exit, but also like in the run up to it makes you just like appreciate it more because i think the biggest thing is once the money's in the account and there is no gospel choir singing about your greatness um the hour afterwards um if you have those points of media you can really really like relive that moment and feel even happier Love it. Great suggestion. We've never heard that before, but I think it's a great suggestion. Last question. Did you buy yourself a trophy, something <laughs> to commemorate the success? Um, I didn't. And I knew you'd ask this question um, and, and, and I didn't, but I have, I guess, not really a trophy, but um, uh, in August, I am going on a first class trip with my girlfriend to Bali, which is about 20 grand. So I guess that's the biggest expense. Um, I haven't bought any, any new houses. I haven't bought, uh, I don't even know how to drive because I spent all my time building the business. So now I'm learning and, and then I'll buy my car. But yeah, the <laughs> Bali trip is the one. That sounds fantastic. Uh, well, Timo, I'm so grateful for you sharing this story. And I think it's, uh, it's an incredible story and an amazing success. Um, I can't wait to hear the next three businesses that you start. <laughs> Put me on your list. Um, where, uh, where can people, if they want to reach out to you on social, what's the best way for people to say hi? Um, I actually think Instagram. Um, Instagram or LinkedIn. By daily Instagram. Um, because... I'm trying to build my social following now. I spent the last five years working with people with big social followings that I now want to grow my own um, around just like, you know, building a business and all that stuff there. So Instagram, which is just my name um, and LinkedIn is also just my name as well. Great. And we'll put all those uh, links at uh, in the show notes at builttocell.com. Timo, thanks for doing this. It was great fun. No problemo. Thank you. That was fun. And there you have it for today's episode with Timo Armu. We hope you enjoyed John Morlow's conversation today with Timo. Again, be sure to follow Timo on LinkedIn. I will share his LinkedIn profile in the show notes section over at buildtocell.com. And there's a fantastic post, which I'll share as well, where he references the flat he grew up in. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms that were referenced, you can go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at builttocell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering, and thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, go ahead and visit valuebuilder.com. 
Thanks for listening to today's show. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. 